I wonder how well we do at that. There's much to be rejoicing in. There's much to be thankful for. And there are myriad ways we're blessed. But as we've been been speaking a bunch throughout this this series, even though we're only a couple weeks in, we can let the circumstances dictate our demeanor, our behavior, and our very attitude. And that's a dangerous thing for us. Because for those of us in Christ, every day is a great day because we have been set free from the bondage of sin and death. And if we don't start there, the waves of the world can feel too much to bear. I can't possibly imagine what Hosea must have felt. You know, that first week we looked at what would it have taken to hear from God in such a powerful way? What kind of posture does it take for us to sit and listen to God when he says, go ahead and marry a woman that will be unfaithful to you time and again. And then when you have kids, name them basically rebellious, not loved, and not my people. And they're going to carry that around. And then later on, you're going to go chase her and buy her back. What kind of person says, okay, God, great, I'll do it? A person that trusts that God's ways are bigger than his ways. A person that trusts that God has a plan and will look after someone like Hosea, even in the most painful of circumstances. And then as we dug deeper last week, we looked at a picture of God that invites us home, no matter what. We've been unfaithful, come home. We haven't been grateful, come back. We've let the storms of the world get in the way of who we know we are to be. Draw near to him. He continuously invites his people, anyone that would call on the name of Jesus, to come back to himself. And he makes it so simple. And then he watches as we humans continuously complicate things. And that's kind of the backdrop of where we find ourselves in Hosea chapter 2. Um, you'll read a lot and you'll study a lot and you'll hear a lot. And if you are on social media, that you've even seen that it's becoming trendy right now to talk a lot about this latest group of people entering the workforce. They're called millennials. And anyone my age or above thinks they're just no good. We think they're entitled. We think they're lazy. We think they want to talk a lot about doing stuff, but then when it gets to it, they don't want to have any deadlines or any responsibility placed upon them. And we think they're all about the feels, about what feels good, about what makes us feel like we're part of something bigger. So when they go in for a job, well, I'm, if they don't like it, I'm just not feeling the vision here, and so I quit. Now, to be fair... Some millennials have earned that reputation and built it well. But sometimes this millennial group that comes up, by the way, I only miss it by a year, so uh, just thought you should know that, that I'm trying to cling to my youth as much as I can. But these millennials can also teach us that there are causes worth fighting for. These millennials have shown us 
to be a people that are reminding the world that there's a lost people out there that need feeding. There's poverty that's great. There are causes that demand our attention. And that we as leaders and examples should know the vision and where we're going and be able to communicate that and invite others to come on with us. So maybe their apathy is a result of our lack of leading by example and showing them there's a better way. We ever think about it like that? So when God looks down at the people of specifically the northern kingdom of Israel at a time when things on the outside were okay because they were very religious at this time, they were under Jeroboam II enjoying a time of prosperity. Remember, we talked about this, but they were doing it all wrong. They were doing it in their own strength. They were seeking false gods. And they had put aside the memory of who God actually is. And with that, I invite you to turn in your Bibles. I want you, as I read a rather lengthy passage of Scripture today, uh, almost two whole chapters in your Bible. Go figure. It's actually not that much uh, when you look at how much we're going to read. But I want you to listen for something. Because often when we listen to the scriptures, we look for, what am I going to get out of this? Please don't do that this morning as you look at Hosea's chapter 2 and 3. I want you to listen and look at who is God. What is he teaching us about himself in chapters 2 and 3? Lord, please open our hearts to your word. May my words be few. And just remind us of your amazing character. In your name I pray, amen. By the way, I apologize, I forgot. Uh, not everybody got a worksheet uh, with their bulletins today. If you are missing one and want to fill in the blanks with us, you are welcome to do that. Just raise your hand and we've got some people in the back that would love to give you uh, your sheet of blanks. Thanks to Doug for letting me know that I had uh, not stuffed all of the bulletins. That's on me. Hosea chapter 2, beginning with verse 8. You can keep your hands up and then you can follow along on the screen as I read. This is what God says through the mouth of Hosea. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her naked body. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days. Mike, the scriptures can't possibly relate to us today. What's Chinese New Year again? Anybody remember what Chinese New Year represents? Yearly festival and what? The new moon. There you go. Just, just chew on that for a second as we continue. All her appointed festivals. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the bales. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me she forgot declares the Lord. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. 
There I will give her back her vineyards, and I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them. In the beasts, with the beasts of the fields, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground, bow and sword and battle, I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. In that day, I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain and the new wine and the olive oil and they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people and they will say, you are my God. The Lord said to me, go, Show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. God, would you open our hearts as we consider your words? Amen. Well, I want to start and reverse engineer this passage because there's a lot going on and I don't want us to miss that these are prophetic words. Depending on when you date this message that Hosea was given from the Lord and when he gave it to the people of Israel and how many times he potentially gave it, the people of Israel are between 10 and 30 years from exile. God's word will come true. They will be without king or without prince for quite a long period of time, hundreds of years. They will go into captivity and it's coming soon. You see, the thing is, as we start today, I want us to remember, as we talked about last week, God not only keeps his promises, but he allows us to deal with the consequences of our choices. And while he draws us back, he's also loving enough to allow us to have choice. And in this case, that choice brought with it punishment. But it didn't end at the punishment. The exile was not permanent. And that's what we rejoice in because we see God's nature at work throughout this passage. And so when we think about people like millennials that want to talk about feelings or with many Christians that because of any number of traditions that they've grown up in, they are really good at knowing the right answers 
But having a relationship with Jesus Christ is much more difficult. And so on one side, you get these people over here that talk about the feelings and how they just feel God at work or they don't feel God at work. And so where is he? Or these people over here that know everything there is to know and can defend to the death everything they need to say and can argue well and do those things. But yet the fruit is lacking and they wonder, God, where are you? In both cases, we seem to have this picture of a giant wave that's encompassed us. And I don't know how well you can see it on our screens, but I've long been fascinated with big wave surfers. Anybody know what a big wave surfer is? Guess what? They surf big waves. It's a really genius name. I love it. And when I say big waves, I say waves 50, 60, 70 feet above. That's like 20 plus meters for those of you that don't speak American. And what that means is that they go out and with a great amount of knowledge, with a great amount of skill, and with a healthy amount of craziness, and they put themselves at the bottom of these giant waves or at the top and make their way down, actually. And they surf these things. And you see, I have been fascinated by these big wave surfers so much that I've actually studied big wave surfing to agree. I can tell you that that wave right there represents over 500 tons of pressure crashing around the little surfer you'll see in a minute. Now, I weigh a certain amount. That is nothing compared to 500 tons. I might be gaining weight as I grow older, but I'm still not nearly strong enough to handle that sort of pressure. So how does one build confidence? I could tell you the right angles that you're supposed to launch at and where you're supposed to come in. If the waves are too white, it means the jet skis or the wave runners can't get out to you because there's too many air bubbles, there's too much oxygen in the water, therefore their jet skis won't work and it's too dangerous, so you're on your own, good luck. I can tell you all these facts. So let me ask you a question. Am I qualified to go surf that wave? Somebody said yes. Thank you. And you're going to have to cover for me as a pastor because I won't make it out. You see, I can read every book in the world about surfing. I still don't surf. I once surfed a wave that was this high for a whole two seconds. It was amazing. I was so proud of myself. And then it took me 20 minutes to get back inland because I'm a lousy swimmer. Then there's the other side of the picture that says, you know what? I've surfed a bit. Can't be that different, right? I'm just going to go for it. I'm just going to do it. And so while one side says, I've got all the knowledge and clearly the geometry is going to work and this is going to happen, and the other side says, just go for it, man. It's going to be awesome. In the end, the result of both of those things is going to be roughly the same. You're going to be caught along the undertow and whether you make it out or not is a question that only God knows. We approach our spiritual lives awfully the same as this. See if you can watch. See, I just gave you a quick, quick view, nothing long. 
But what happens in the Christian faith is we often feel like the world around us is crashing like that wave. And we then try to deal with it from a spiritual standpoint in one of two ways, with lots of knowledge, God knows this and should do this, that and the other, or I'm just going to trust that God's going to make everything work out. But in both cases, we can lose sight of who God is. We can lose sight of the invitation he has given us to seek him first. Not to wait and call on him once we've crashed and we're stuck along the undertow, wondering if we'll make it out. But he's not made himself so mysterious that we can't know him. And that's where we begin uh, often to struggle. We've got all these reasons that God can't possibly be real because I don't see him here, there, or everywhere. But yet, who created the heavens and the earth? His work is evident all around us. Last weekend, if you were with us for any part of the remembrance of Shirley Chung's life, it was so obvious that God was at work. Reverend Bechtel is with us this morning, and he's been able to be a part of 134 churches being planted. God works. I hiked with my wife on Friday, and I got to look out at the untouched scenery of where I live, and I thought, man, God, you are so creative. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Literally, I lifted up my eyes to the hills. Lord, how are you going to get me through? And I was reminded in all of these different circumstances that God invites us into a relationship with him. He invites us to know him and to live out the fruits of a relationship with him. So what I call that is knowledge and experience that build a relationship. You see, God speaks through Hosea in a way that points and demonstrates his nature to us. And he wants the people of Israel, and therefore, by default, us some 3,000 years later nearly, he wants us to understand a little bit of his character. Abe Lincoln was famous for saying that your character is the tree trunk that spreads out a shadow, which is your reputation. In other words, it's the character that gives you the ability to shine his light brightly, in our case, God's light brightly, for others to see. But we try to tell God how to act. We try to tell God what to do, don't we? We try to tell God there's the right way to do this, there's the wrong way to do this, and your will for my life should go like this, God. Now, we might not admit that that's how we say it, but then our actions might betray us, much like the people of Israel. So in chapters 2 and 3, I want to keep things very simple for us. And there's a million things we could say about this passage. There is so much here, so much so that we're going to come back next week and look more carefully at Gomer, or actually in a couple weeks. Next week, we've got a special Sunday planned. But I want us to see what God reveals about himself. Where do we start when we understand that God speaks through Hosea in a way that demonstrates his nature. We see, starting in verse 8, God as provider. Many of you grew up learning the attributes of God, and one of those was Jehovah Jireh, our provider. Just at the offering, we thanked God for how he provides that we can be a church that gives away a lot of money to different missions groups as they seek to make disciples of all nations, that we are involved in ministry all over Hong Kong and beyond. 
And like every good father, God cares for his own even when the care is undeserved. What do I mean by that? Well, look at verse 8. She has not acknowledged that I was the one that gave her the grain. How often do we go through our days very proud of ourselves for what we've accomplished? By the way, it's okay to take pride in your work. You should. But that pride is meant to be aimed upward, not horizontally. Horizontally says, I'm awesome. You are awesome. Because God made you, God created you, and God loves you. That makes you awesome. But he also calls you to remember that he's the one that gave it and he can take it away. He is our provider. We're taught time and again throughout the scriptures from the, as Hosea reminds the people of Israel, remember who brought you out of Egypt? God says that a lot because we keep forgetting that it was him that brought the people of Israel out of slavery and into the light and into making them a people when they were not a people. For us, we've been set free from sin and death once for all. But yet sin can look enticing and we draw back to it. And God is reminding his people to acknowledge him. He is the one that provides. He is the one that gives us all we need. He is the one that's got a plan and that is trustworthy. What's the overwhelming theme of Hosea? God is faithful. And the scriptures tell us that he will do exactly what he's promised. His character is immutable. It's a big word, right? It means he's unchanging. But, but Mike, I like change. Well, you know what? So do I. But there's some things in our life that we don't want to change if we're accurate about it, right? You want to know that that chair you're sitting in is going to hold your weight, Right? You don't want that to suddenly change. You don't want what you've believed about someone to suddenly change. And when it does, it can be very painful for us because we see that their character wasn't what we thought it was. And that can be devastating. You know what you will never find true? That God's character has changed. He is always God. He's the same as he's always been. And when he looks down at us, Psalm 40 that I read to start, the old versions of the Bible uh, used to say, he inclined to me. You know what that means? He didn't say, come up to where I am. He stuck his head down and leaned down and listened for our cry. He came down to us in such a tangible way as John teaches us. God became man and made his living among us. That's a God that loves his people, wants to provide for him, and his nature is a provider. Just as those of us that are parents in this room, we begin as our children move into those, what we call the tween years, we begin to think, hopefully we've already thought, but it begins to get real about 11 and 12, what's my kid going to do for university and how am I going to pay for it? And we begin to get that stress in our tummy, and it's like, oh Lord, Please don't let them go to school in America where they charge so much money. Please don't let them go here where they do this or they do that. And we get all sorts of worries about this, right? Liars. 
You know you worry about that. Or maybe I'm just right there. Maybe that's very real to me and you're already past that. Well done. But see, the thing is, we love to provide for our children. And God loves to provide for his people. And he offers it even when we don't acknowledge him. He wasn't reminding people of his provision because they had acknowledged him. He was reminding people he is Jehovah Jireh because they'd forgotten it. And he wanted them to see very visually through the person of Hosea that he is still in the business of providing for his people. He doesn't stop there, though. This is what I love. And this one's hard to explain um, in the terms of God because we don't always think about God like this. And so I'm going to use another biblical example to make sure you understand. But the verse says, Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I'm going, often when this word in the Hebrew was used in the Bible, it was entice her. And it wasn't always a positive word. Here it is, uh, a very positive word. I am going to draw her back. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Men that have successfully convinced a woman to marry you. Do you remember what it was like when you were trying to convince her to go on that first date and then you've defined the relationship and you've said, okay, we're going to be a couple, however words you use. And you begin to do all these things to show her how valuable she is to you. And you spoke tenderly to her, noticing everything there was about her. Maybe a woman, you were the pursuer because the man was so stubborn or bullheaded that he didn't realize how great you were. So you had to remind him. That happens as well. But in either case, this idea of alluring someone because you want them to see that you're worth spending time with. What God does to us is so much bigger than that. God pursues us so much that he would give us Jesus. His nature caused him not just to create a people, but to create a way for that people to be saved. In the parable of the prodigal son, or as Tim Keller likes to call it, the parable of the two lost sons, because you've got the younger brother that runs off on his own, the older brother that complains, God, why, or Dad, why are you being nice to your, my younger brother? He doesn't deserve it. And the dad says, because he once was lost and now he's found and you've always been with me. But the part of the story I want us to remember today is what that Hebrew man did when he saw his son coming from afar. He did what no Hebrew man should have done. You know what that was? He ran. That is so not Middle Eastern culture, not even today. If your son has left, they're out. They're excommunicated. They are, in all essences, dead to the family. And restoration would be a long and painful affair. And Jesus gives us this picture of the father chasing down his son that once was lost, but now has come home. God, the pursuer, amongst great unfaithfulness, God is faithful. Some of you right now feel like, I couldn't come back. There's no way. I'm just at church because I know I'm supposed to be. God isn't just waiting for you. He's running toward you. He's saying, I got you. 
I can bring you home. And that's what he was doing for the people of Israel. He was going to give them some hard life lessons until they got it. But he was never going to stop pursuing his people. Because we learn that not only that, but he's a promise keeper. You see, not only does he provide a means for us to be reconciled to himself. Oops, that's the wrong text. I messed up on my notes here a little bit, so I apologize. The promise keeper just goes down and look at what he says. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. Our reflection of God's attributes either defines our lives or illustrates our unfaithfulness to him. What do I mean by that? Well, we're going to go back in a second and we're going to look at who God teaches us he is in verse 19. And we're going to look very carefully at what then are we to do with that? Because here's the thing. God doesn't just invite us home. He says to, to us that we are to reflect his what are called communicable attributes. What's that mean? It's a big word, Mike, and you don't need to give the big words. Well, yeah, I do. The communicable aspects of God's nature are those that we are to follow along and live out in our own lives, simply. If God is faithful, we should be faithful. If God pursues us, we should be pursuing others to make disciples of them. If God is love, we should be marked by love, right? So then we go back, and what do we look at? Well, we look at qualities of God's nature, and then we ask ourselves some assessment questions. Can we do that this morning? Because I think it's pretty cool when we think about how do we apply this and how do the scriptures show us that we are to apply this. Well, first, we see in verse 19 that God is righteous. Isn't that great? That God never sins. We like that. We should like that. We want our God to be above reproach. We're called to that. We make mistakes, but we know that God never lets us down. He never sins. He is righteous. He is pure. Oh, that I love that about him. But then, if you believe in Jesus Christ, the answer is already yes. But do we live it out? Are we clothed in his righteousness? What do I mean by that? Well, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God. In other words, because of Jesus and what he has done on our behalf to give us access to the Father through him, the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit, given power by the Holy Spirit to live in this world and function in a way that shows the world who God is. We have been made the righteousness of God, not because of what we've done, but because of who Jesus is. We are clothed in his righteousness. He paid for our sins because he loves us and because he obeyed God the Father and he went to the cross on our behalf. So do we live victoriously? Do we say, I've been set free. I am righteous because I'm wearing the righteousness of Jesus. I'm wearing it with me. When we have a hard decision, do we invite him to search our hearts and guide us through that? Do we seek his word from a position of righteousness? Because we can't do it on our own. We keep trying to think that we can do these things on our own. And we need the strength of God at work in and through us. We need his help. 
We need the knowledge that comes from studying this, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and the experience of learning not just from what we've done in the past, but what others have learned before us. And we put those together, and we can learn to live and learn and love the will of God like never before, because we wear his righteousness, because we are clothed in him, not in the filthy rags that we call our own self-righteousness. But the next thing we see is God is just. And this one can be confusing at times because I just listened to a podcast last week that was talking about how so much of the Bible talks about God being a vengeful God or an angry God. And I can see why if you read God's word, it can come across that way. But if you read God's word fully, And if you begin to look at why he's doing the things he's doing, he's inviting people back to himself and he's dealing very accurately with the sin of this world and he's showing people that sin destroys and that there is a way to come back. So much so that he would give Jesus his son for that in an act of amazing justice. We think giving your son is actually this great act of grace and mercy, both of which it is, but it's a just act. It's a legal act. Someone took our place. Someone paid the penalty for our breaking of the law so that we didn't have to. Uh, the New American Standard and the NA, the English Standard Version both used the word propitiation there. He paid the price for us. Sin had to be atoned for, had to be paid for. And God made a way through Jesus Christ for us to be forgiven and given eternal life, set free from the handcuffs of sin. His justice did that. How cool is that? How amazing is it that God's justice provides a way for us to be forgiven? Sin had to be paid for, so he gave us the only one that could pay the price for our sins. He gave us Jesus. But then he tells us that true religion is this, looking after the widows and orphans and not being polluted by the ways of the world. Micah tells us that we are to walk humbly, to love justice and to seek mercy, that these are the things we as the people of God are to do. So are we seeking out justice for the oppressed today? Or are we an awful lot like the northern people of Israel? that have forgotten who God is and what he's invited us to and the life that he's invited us to. But God doesn't just stop there as he reminds us of his nature. He keeps going. He reminds us that he is loving. Listen to this. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love. I will betrothed. I am committed to you. I am making a promise, a commitment to you, much like Mary was betrothed to Joseph and God told Joseph to stick with the commitment he'd already made. Something amazing and miraculous was coming. God has betrothed us to himself in love, out of great love for us. So how then do we love others when it's hard? Well, We look at his example and we think how hard must it have been for him to love a people that continually reject, forget, and betray him. And yet he continues to invite us home. That theme of Hosea keeps coming up. He says, come back. 
And so when we respond to situations, do we respond out of love for him that then draws us into a place of ability to love others? It never goes the other way around. Our love for others doesn't help us love God more. It doesn't work that way. It can show us a little bit of who he is, but the way to know more of God is out of love for him, we serve others. Out of love for him, we seek to make sure those around you are valued. Uh, I did a devotional. Uh, the Bible uh, app that I use had one on conversations that we need to have, and it looked at different prayers and conversations in the Bible, and it was great. And one of the days focused on reading a bunch of the different things that God tells us about us. And it had us read that we are God's workmanship created to do his will and his great works for his great pleasure. And it had me read that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It had me read that God has a plan. It had me read all of these things about how God loves us so much And out of a love for him, we're invited to love our world. But do we do it? Do we show people how valuable they really are? I've uh, I've tried to avoid uh, social media this weekend because my home country just inaugurated a new president. And it has been a horribly divisive thing. Whether you agree that he should be president or not doesn't matter. He's been placed there, and God can use a broken man, right? In any country. We're seeking a new leader in our country, and God can use broken people to draw us back to himself. Hong Kong will have a chief executive come, what, two more months? Yeah. And who knows? God does. But see, here's the thing. When I looked at social media, it was full of anger. It was full of hatred It was full of words that I shouldn't be repeating, let alone reading. And it made me sad. Because in this opportunity to trust that God's ways are higher than our ways, we're busy throwing rocks at each other, both Christian and non-Christian. We're busy showing how we're divisive and divided rather than how God can draw us back to himself. How big he is that there is room for everyone that would call on the name of Jesus to be saved. From Donald Trump to C.Y. Lung to Xi Jinping and everyone in between. God calls people to Jesus to bring them home. He loves everybody. Do we believe that about him? And if we truly believe that about him, how do we treat those around us? See, it is. It's a cyclical thing. And finally, God is compassionate out of his compassion for a broken, stubborn, stiff-necked people, Jesus liked to say, brood of vipers, he invites us back. He had compassion on us. He saw our sinful plight. And he said, I will make a way for them to be saved. I love them more than they know. And I will have compassion on whom no one should have compassion. I will show mercy on whom no one should show mercy. But yet, if I talk to somebody about why did they leave the church, it's because, well, I'm mad at somebody or that person did this and I can't let it go or that person did that and it hurt me or this or that. 
And we can't give away the same grace, mercy, and compassion that we have been given. So what does that tell us about the character of God? What does that tell us about what we believe about him if we don't want to give away his compassion? There's a world desperately in need of people not to divide, but to draw near. Maybe you don't agree with their theology. Maybe you don't agree with where they are in life. Nine times out of ten, those people already know you don't agree with where they are in life. They want to know if you love them and will walk with them anyway. And if you will, what they don't want to know is that you're praying for them to soften their hearts. St. Augustine of Hippo, ever heard of him? Outside of God himself, he and John Calvin are two of the most influential early church fathers we have. Much of our tradition in the church comes from St. Augustine. But St. Augustine was not a saint for many numbers of years. In fact, he was a rebellious, sinful, selfish, drunkard of a man that liked his women and wasn't particularly faithful to anybody but himself. But he had a mother. (laughs) Oh, did he have a mother. He had a mother that prayed and prayed and prayed that God would draw him back to himself. And God did it. St. Augustine didn't wake up one day and say, nah. God got a hold of his heart out of compassion for a man that didn't deserve it and not only drew him back to himself but used a broken vessel to put a treasure in a jar of clay and to continue to shape the church some 1,500 years later. How amazing is that? We can point to the flaws of so many people that we forget that God is at work transforming us, which brings us to our final bit, God, our Redeemer. God saw our sin and provided a way for us to be brought home. I've already touched on this. I'm not going to continue it again. He says, I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. Remember the names of Hosea's children? Not loved and not my people. Look at what God is doing. I will call them You are, I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. And I will say to those not my people, you are my people and we will respond, you are my God. Through Jesus Christ, we have been redeemed. And so what do we do with this? I'm going to finish up. When we know, when we know the word, when we have studied and and learned the knowledge of God, And when we experience, we live out the fruits of that in word and deed, who God is. He opens our heart to a depth, to a deep connection with him that doesn't say we just rely on feeling, we just rely on knowledge. But together we live out a life that looks more and more like Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. God's attributes shining through us to show the world his greatness. Are we a people of justice? Are we a people of righteousness? Are we a people of compassion and love? Are we a people that pursue others even when it's hard? I was so convicted as I heard testimony of, after testimony of Shirley's life. And I was convicted not because she'd done something wrong, but how much she'd done right and how short I fall 
She would pursue so many people, whether it be phone call or WhatsApp. She would be in the hospital and she was still chasing people down, seeing how they were doing, checking on their relationship with the Lord. What about us? Do we live out the fruit of knowing that God is love and we give that away to others? God invites us into a deeper relationship with himself through knowledge of his word, through the experience of living for him and saying, I'll go do what you want me to do, Lord. I'll obey and I'll trust that you will give me all I need for such a time. Something tells me John Bechtel didn't think when he got started that he was going to plant 134 churches. But he did think, I'll go do what God has called me to do. And he was obedient. And we are here because of his faithfulness through people like Reverend Bechtel. Amen? We're here because people have been obedient. But it's God who pursues. God invites us into depth. He invites us into life. And he invites us into living with him, into his work that's already going on. Let's pray. Lord, you are good. And you've invited us to be connected to you, our Father, through your Son, by the power and wonderful working of your Holy Spirit. Please teach us to stand firm on you, not on the whims and the ways of the world, not on the feelings of the day or the latest philosophy of the hour, but may we stand firm on who you are and may others see you at work in us and draw near to you. Amen.